Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited. If you guys listen to the podcast I recorded with Scott in Vermont, um, you might have heard a little bit about what they did to deconstruct his existing residence. So I'm really excited today to have Eric Kruger on. Um, he is the one who facilitated actually the deconstruction of the existing house. Um, his company is called Deconstruction Works, and I would love to have you tell us who you are, what you're doing, what you're up to, and then talk about how we should all be doing this. I think uh, Garrow mentioned he didn't have a dumpster at all on this job site. So hopefully a lot. And Scott said some ridiculous amount of it was, was recycled. So Eric, tell us a little bit more about you and what, what you, what you do. So my name is Eric Kruger and I'm one of the owners of deconstruction works. Um, I've been in the building recycling um, industry since 2004 and oftentimes um, deconstruction goes and with um, some form of a reuse store um, because generating material from saving homes still has to make it into customers' hands. So back in 2004, I was running a retail store and a deconstruction um, service. And I've chosen now to pretty much focus exclusively on the deconstruction side of things because we've really seen an explosion of reuse stores in part fueled by Habitat for Humanity. So um, I got into the trade, this particular specialty trade because I, like many builders, was uncomfortable with the amount of material that was going in the dumpster that's what we call perfectly reusable. And uh, like many contractors, I had a cache of materials at my house that was too good to throw away. And like many contractors, the pile got bigger and bigger and it was more than I could use on my own. So uh, the need for a retail space to make this material available to others uh, was the genesis of my first, uh, the first business, which was called Renew Salvage. Um, since then, as I mentioned before, there's a number of ways to uh, get this material to new homes, including direct to customer through um, things we're all familiar with now, like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. But back in 2004, they barely existed. Yeah. So I'm really excited to hear, uh, you know, what's the most challenging part of deconstructing a residence, um, you know. I feel like every time I talk to Bob Swinburne in Vermont, I'm, I'm so uh, envious of what you guys are doing. You know, I feel like the world is being filled up with spray foam that just glues a bunch of materials together. So like, what's the what's the hardest thing to deconstruct or like wh what building practice do you wish people would stop doing? Because it's nearly impossible to to sort into its own pieces. Oh, you brought up spray foam. I understand that spray foam has a place in uh, air sealing and uh, it has become the you go to solution for uh, basements, especially in New England with their dry stonewall construction. But um, the first time we encountered spray foam was over 15 years ago and it was in the form of a apple orchard cooler, 
which is a totally appropriate use for spray foam. They basically built a box, coated it with foam, and that was their cooler for apples. And our solution then, as it almost is now, is to get a sawzall out, cut it in pieces. The dumps spray foam is this of what a deconstructionist wants to see. And uh, there's also a movement among the architectural and design community called Design for Deconstruction, which is where you put things together in a way that they can be disassembled and used again. And while the spirit is totally appropriate, folks who think that designing for deconstruction involves substituting screws for nails um, also is a, uh, is a nemesis to me because we find that prying things apart and then pulling the nails out is actually much faster than driving screws back out. And screw technology has come a long way with torque screws, but back in the day, you'd have galvanized square drive screws and screws that are driven too far home. And both of those are extremely hard to take out and end up with a lot of wood breakage. But that's that's the negative side. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of positive opportunities in uh, in building recycling, and uh, it's a combination of techniques and a combination of markets. So you really um, over time and with training, um, any contractor can get um, familiar with the least damaging way to take things apart, combined with markets where you uh, you might have to travel a little further or do a little more research but finding places that will accept traditionally un, traditionally disposed of materials. Um, really, that's what brings the, the dumpster volume down. Um, in Bob's particular case, the building did have spray foam in it, so we, we overshot our dumpster volume. But uh, we, we are fortunate where we are that we have um, both a place to take unpainted, untreated wood, which is used for composting, fortunately not for incineration. And we have a place to take um, asphalt shingles, tear off shingles and that sort of thing. Uh, and depending on your community and if they've enacted landfill bans on construction and demolition waste, you may have a more or less developed um, end, end source for some of these more specialty items. Yeah, so so interesting to hear you say about the nails because um, my house was built in the 70s and people who listen to the podcast regularly know that because we can't travel or haven't been able to travel much in the last uh, year and a half, my husband and I have basically been deconstructing and reconstructing our own house. And um, I think the number of four inch nails holding my house together is just absolutely astronomical, but you're right. They do come apart. And, um, I had a brick surround behind, uh, behind my, uh, wood stove that I took apart one brick at a time and I salvaged all the bricks and they're going to be an exterior project. And, you know, we, we took all of those two buys, we reused them for blocking and everything that we, we had. And, you know, we pulled out our boiler so we can scrap the baseboards and the, and the, you know, copper piping. Um, but I was still, you know, really shocked at the pile of things that we then, you know, in our area couldn't do anything with. Um, and so, and am like you said, interestingly enough, have a pile of wood that we salvaged that, you know, we might do things with that just keeps getting larger. And I keep wondering like, what exactly is, am I going to do with this? Where am I going to put it? So, um, 
So it was really interesting to hear you say that about screws because uh, the screws we did have was frustrating because there were so many different kinds. There were flatheads, there were squares, there were stars, there were uh, regular Phillips, then there were four inch nails, then there were pin nails. I mean, just just the stuff that people use to put stuff together. I, I really respect what you do because you have to take extra time. So how much longer do you estimate it takes to deconstruct something versus, you know, you'll often see a crew come in a couple of sledgehammers, you know, and, and blow through it. Like how long did it take you, you know, reasonably to deconstruct a, I don't know. I was going to say typical house. There's no such thing as a typical house. So. (laughs) Well, um, I wanted to um, touch base on the, your comment first about the variety of uh, fasteners uh, and put in a plug for something called the nail kicker um, spelled just like it sounds. If, if, if the audience today includes uh, contractors or even do-it-yourselfers looking at a full-size project, this is a pneumatic air tool that um, backs nails out of lumber, and it does wonders to, uh, to, for flooring salvage and for um, framing reuse. And if you're going to be doing more than a week of pulling nails, the $400 investment is well worth it. Saves the body um, because we, none of us want to be a human backhoe. Um, as far as um, the question of the ever growing pile of lumber in your yard and what will it be used for, this brings up a useful question, which people say, well, who, who, is, who is your end market? Who's buying the stuff that you deconstruct? And in your own case, you'll notice you have a, a, a pile of lumber that's not all consistent. It's not all the same length. It's not all the same dimension. And there's not really enough of anything but we tend to find that this goes well for projects such as garden beds or woodsheds or chicken coops. So while it is reuse, a lot of it's a slightly lower grade of reuse. And some communities have um, codes that regard stamped lumber and structural reuse of used lumber that can be a a limiting factor. Um, We like to think of deconstruction not only as an environmental practice, but also in some ways a social justice practice. And the reason for that being that this work is, has a relatively low bar for entry, uh, not only in the skill set, but in the equipment required. And um, it also is labor intensive. Um, so if you um, were to, to do an online search of folks who are doing this kind of work, you'll find there's oftentimes a um, a hiring policy for disadvantaged folks or folks coming out of the criminal justice system. Um, we're in Vermont where there's a very low immigrant community population and the poverty is not as acute as perhaps some areas. So that's not necessarily our focus right now, but it ties into your question about length of work because a single family home can be reduced to 2000 square feet can be reduced to a pile in less than a day by yellow machine. And so you're paying, you're paying one machine operator and two truck drivers and the job is done. Um, whereas the work that we do, that same house could take up to a month um, depending on the approach. Um, there's sort of three schools of thought for deconstruction. One is you take out the uh, reusable insides like the flooring and the cabinets and the windows, the high grade stuff. And then you let the machine knock the rest down. That's one 
approach and that usually works best when when the architect and the builder don't have a lot of time in their schedule or they're calling you in the 11th hour the second approach is uh is used by some folks especially in areas where there's so many buildings available um urban blight areas like say buffalo or cleveland um, where you have a housing stock of literally thousands of houses that need to be deconstructed. And in that case, it's a hybrid model where they're using heavy equipment, but they're panelizing the building and they're say, take a roof, uh, they're cutting the roof into panels, laying it on the ground, flipping it over and just popping off the rafters, which is the highest value. Um, that tends, you can have a house done in less than a week using that method, but your materials reuse, um, volume is is diminished and then you sort of have the old-fashioned i might even call it the amish way where nothing is wasted you know you're picking up the nails off the floor kind of approach and that's the one that we used in in bob's house um so the contractor bob was working with um they went through and identified material in the house that could be incorporated into the new home and uh, it was a combination of the general contractor removing some of those items and us removing some of those items. So in his case, that involved um, uh, hardwood flooring, uh, kitchen cabinets. Um, when we got to the roof system, we saved all the sheet foam insulation. And um, in many cases, especially in cases where folks are, um, a house has been recently improved for resale. In other words, they, they tried to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. People have put in, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to get a house sold. And then the next buyer has different ideas for it. Um, so there oftentimes is fairly new finishes in a house um, that just don't match the aesthetic or the design of the, of the new homeowner. Uh, so it's labor intensive. And I, I encourage folks who are interested in deconstruction to bring that up as they're shopping for their contractor, as they're shopping for their architect, because it's all about schedule. If there's a realistic schedule expectation set up, then there's room for deconstruction. But if the heavy equipment is on site in the first week, then there's going to be a lot of tongue biting and lip biting where you look at these three or four guys going, oh my God, when are they going to be done? Yeah, and that that makes so much sense. And I mean, we we talk about you know our, our building materials and how to cut down you know on what goes to the landfill during you know new construction, right? But we don't often talk about taking you know taking things down. And at what point you know there was a um, I know when Bob started that project, they looked at okay, well, do we keep the existing house and do we renovate the existing house? And there, you know, didn't make a, a lot of sense to do that. And so, you know, to then deconstruct it because they wanted to, you know, potentially renovate, oh, it felt like a, a much better place. Um, you know, and, and we talked about something. So, so, what about things like concrete or, you know, toilets or sheetrock do things like that that you know they don't come apart well toilets come out fine but you know with water saving principles and stuff depending on how old the toilet is people don't want to you know reuse a toilet that's you know three and a half gallons or you know habitat won't resell that you know I know there are places in the country that you know crush up porcelain or or whatever do you do you have stuff like that? Or is that some of the stuff that goes into the dumpster with the, you know, how, like how, so, how 
Yeah, you you mentioned you know you you're in in that part where it's almost like the Amish model of reuse everything or you know crush and redistribute. So so what do you do with those things? So you're really talking about markets here, and uh, this has always been a, a discussion in our industry. Um, how do you incentivize markets and markets reuse reuse options that can use things on a volume that make it accessible? Um, we are a small industry and it's very easy for any one product or any one um, region to overwhelm the capacity right now. Um, but getting into the weeds with you, um, we um, typically with, with porcelain that is um, not to code. So that's uh, the full flush toilets. Uh, wall hung sinks are really notoriously hard to find new homes for. Um, we have a network of homeowners that have approved fill projects. So they're trying to, they're not trying to fill a wetland, but they're trying to raise their parking area, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, we send things like porcelain tile, um, broken roof slate, um, toilets um, and small amounts of concrete and cinder block. Uh, we, we just individually transport those to those locations. And there's, there's typically in most communities, somebody with a plywood sign next to the road that says clean fill wanted and a phone number. And so that's the way we approach that one. Uh, sheetrock is a little more problematic um, because painted sheetrock, you now have the burden of the paint that's on there. And even if it's only latex paint, that's not technically considered clean fill. Um, and while the industry really has been trying to find ways with a combination of water and scrubbing to remove that paper layer from the sheetrock so you can get to just the gypsum, um, the only large scale um, use of sheetrock recycling that I'm aware of is when um, you're talking about virgin sheetrock, which hasn't been painted yet. So, um, and in our local community that is put in the composting stream, although um, sheetrock is problematic in landfills and in the composting stream because it produces uh, some form of sulfur, which is what adds to the smell of landfill that the neighbors don't like. So again, there's a, there's a material that in small volumes can be accommodated. There's also a, um, both of these items in a more traditional environment would be considered um, alternative daily cover. And that's a fancy term for what the dump puts on top of the pile of trash every day so that it's not eaten by animals and blown away. So um, sometimes you can get a better tipping rate if what you're bringing is inert, um, but it's not like household waste or compost. Um, I forget what other item you brought up that was problematic. Um, I don't remember now either, uh, you know, those are the ones that just kind of come to mind immediately, right? right? Because it's like, you have this thing, but you know, you feel like you should be able to reuse it. I, I mean, the same with, you know, I'm sure that anything plastic, you have to just dispose, you know, is there, is there plastic recycling for vinyl siding that's at the end of its life or, you know, because of the UV treatment and whatever? This this is interesting because again, our industry is is um, is at the whim of the global markets. Um, when oil prices are high, there's a lot more of an incentive for folks to look at, for example, asphalt shingle recycling or potentially for PVC siding recycling. Um, 
even um, most carpet companies have ostensibly have recycling programs, but just like the Tetra Pak containers that your, um, your uh, aseptic soy milk comes in or juice boxes, it's, it's one of those materials that has multiple components that make them harder to reuse and certainly not reused in the same capacity. So carpet is usually made up of more than one kind of fiber. Uh, a lot of companies will take back their own carpet and carpet tile is especially recyclable. Um, we find for vinyl siding, if it's not old and brittle, we will actually sell vinyl siding as vinyl siding. And we need to remember that um, we live, we all live in communities that have um, pockets of poverty and people with different resources. And so you have people living in substandard housing and what looks like trash to somebody who's working on a quarter million dollar renovation project is really gold to somebody who's living in a single wide or double wide trailer or, you know, a, 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 an addition onto a house and mother-in-law type unit that may be looking at plywood siding right now. And, you know, used vinyl is a vast improvement over what they have and frequently will market a whole house of vinyl for $500. And, you know, the short sections can't be reused and not all the J mold can be reused, but there's quite a bit of, um, material that can that can find a home and one of the one of the ways that we make this work as a business financially is that when the homeowner hires us to remove a building they're basically paying us to find homes for all these things so whether we the vinyl siding goes to somebody for five hundred dollars or goes to somebody for zero dollars our business model is not dependent upon the sale of the material to make ourselves whole um which is a little different than a homeowner working for themselves. So, so I can, I can give things away if I need to and not worry that my bottom line is affected. Yeah. That's a, that's a great place to be in because it, you know, it takes the, the, it puts it back into that, you know, the, the feel good part of it, right. It's like your goal is to recycle as much of this as possible. That's the goal, right? That's the goal. The homeowner is paying you to, to do right? If you can make money on it, great. If you can't, that, that's good. Uh, what's the, so I think what I'm hearing from you is the biggest challenge is having somewhere for all of this stuff to go and, you know, knowing what to do. I mean, I never really thought about, you know, decent vinyl siding being taken off carefully could easily be reused on, you know, a, a smaller house. Like, wow. Okay. That's great. You know, vinyl siding isn't, forever and it isn't maintenance free the way that you know it does eventually break down or whatever but if it has another 10 or 20 years on another house i mean that's 10 or 20 years it's not in the landfill right so um what what do you need from the market to make it more successful or to have more people get into an industry like you're doing um you know, cause you had said before we started recording about, you know, there have to be early adopters. There have to be people out there proving that this is a viable business that you can do, that we can absolutely do it. But you know, that there's, you know, there's market streams and stuff that, that make it difficult. What, what would make it so much easier for more people to adopt this? Um, I will tell you that in, there are some communities in the United States that have a very developed developed recycling ethic and network. And I would cite areas like the San Francisco Bay Area has a number of reuse um, 
operations there and more especially Portland, which is a municipality that has actually enacted legislation requiring pre-demolition uh, project review and some component of deconstruction. And there legislatively they've incentivized deconstruction and it's it's mutually supportive for both the deconstructionists and for the reuse stores. Um, the biggest issue we seem to run into is a greater demand for our services than we can provide. Um, and uh, we get calls, well, you're in Maine. We get calls from Maine. We get calls from the New Hampshire seacoast. Um, we get calls from the greater Boston area. And um, because we're on a site for, um, for a full takedown for, for quite a while, it's, it's a big ask to go that far. And it's also, it's not the model we're looking for. We want to have distributed deconstruction. We don't want to have a couple of people traveling long distances. That's one challenge. The second challenge is um, the um, not deconstruction is not always within the budget of uh, every of every homeowner. Uh, the folks who are calling us looking to feel good but are looking for the lowest number, I'm, I have to tell them no, it's not going to work. I'm not going to be your lowest number, um, which is a disappointment to them. And like so many things, doing the right thing is sometimes upfront more expensive. And when somebody's working out a project budget and they see an additional potentially $10,000 on the front end, they're like, oh, now we don't have a high end kitchen. We have a medium grade kitchen, you know, and, and folks are willing to spend the money on something that they can see and enjoy later but they're not necessarily willing to spend it on the front end. Um, I will bring up at this point um, an option which um, was used in Scott's case, which is for homeowners that have um, the means, um, the IRS recognizes the materials coming from a deconstructed home have value, and there's actually an appraisal system in place to do that. And so um, if a firm like ours, which is uh, for-profit, uh, works with a nonprofit organization to donate those materials, they can be appraised and can be itemized as a charitable contribution. Um, the whole house deconstruction appraisal industry, like so many things, has its good apples and, and it's bad. But um, a, a reputable um, appraisal firm can properly value a home and the homeowner can realize a significant um, charitable contribution. This can range anywhere from twenty or thirty thousand dollars, all the way in excess of a hundred thousand dollars, and a lot of it depends on the size of the structure and the quality of the materials. In the case of Scott's project, this was a uh, this is sort of a kit-built house from the uh, you know the mid '60s, as I recall. And while it had its issues for where it was installed, um, it had high-quality materials in it. The flooring. Um, was not original, but again, they were able to reuse that on site. The entire building was built with Douglas fir, tongue and groove material. So the siding and the ceilings was all Douglas fir. And that commands a premium price, especially in a market such as ours, which is a way, you know, to get Douglas fir to the East Coast becomes a, you know, an expensive proposition. Um, and it's also, it came from a period of time where the quality of the lumber was much higher. And we see that even in our 1800s houses where you're looking at, you know, quarter sawn lumber or, you know, not free material that wasn't a considered a premium product at the time. It was just what people build with. And we, uh, we worked with another contractor in, um, 
in Massachusetts recently where it was a sort of Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright-esque inspired building, not dissimilar from Scott's project. Um, and it had eight foot roof overhangs that protected beautiful redwood siding, one by six redwood siding. Imagine that on the East Coast in the 60s, very similar to the Sears and Roebuck kit houses of the of the post-war era. And so all these, all these quality materials really add to the potential appraisal value that a homeowner can realize if they choose the charitable donation route. Um, and oftentimes in the final analysis, depending on their personal tax situation, that can make deconstruction a, a revenue neutral uh, proposition. Yeah, so, so that's really interesting to think about, you know, the ways that you could, could do that. Um, so when somebody calls you up and they want to, to deconstruct, do you go and do a site visit just to see the quality of the materials that you might, might have beforehand? Um, because there are going to be some things like, you know, cheaper cabinets or cheap flooring or, you know, cheaper things that they put in that, you know, you show up to the job site and it's like all well and good that they maybe want to deconstruct it. But like some of that stuff doesn't come apart well. So we do, we do, um, a wide range of, of structures. Um, candidly, some of it depends on how busy we are, um, and how far away it is. But, um, we are looking at a number of things for usually folks contact us through our website. And, uh, if people are looking for a, a deconstruction provider in their area, depending if this is a regional or national audience. Uh, we have a trade association we're part of called the Building Materials Reuse Association. They've recently rebranded themselves to Build Reuse, and they have a website, buildreuse.org. And there's a directory there of, of service providers. Um, when you make the initial contact, we need things like the square footage, where it's located and such. And then I typically ask folks to follow up with uh, photos, um, and if it's an older structure, um, some kind of assurance that the roof is still sound and dry because we also do things like barns and outbuildings, buildings that have gotten wet, buildings that have been uh, abandoned for a long period of time, buildings that have been vandalized um, in my particular market are not attractive to me. I understand in some urban markets, that's what you have to work with. Uh, and then, yes, we have a site visit and a real integral part of the site visit um, for me and for for any reputable deconstruction firm is an assessment of um, potential environmental challenges. So um, the, the biggest one that we have to work with is asbestos. Um, that's EPA regulated. Um, lead is a, is a second, but not as problematic. Um, we, um, our firm is not, um, some, some folks are certified to do uh, asbestos surveys right when they come to site. Most excavation companies do that because uh, they're going to be doing the abatement on their own projects as well. But there is a variety of things that as, where asbestos has been used in over time. It was a, it was a, um, it's like the plastics of this century um, in, uh, in the post-war era when, um, when it was used for not only um, its fireproofing capacities, but it's, uh, strength capacities, it's lightweightness. And so we have, uh, we have a housing stock that um, has uh, sort of what I would call hidden asbestos in many places. And folks say, oh, I signed a real estate disclosure statement that said my house did not have asbestos or lead in it. And, and I say, well, we're going to have our hands on every piece of your house. And so even if nobody can see it, 
I can assure you we'll probably find it. And so we, we ask that people hire an asbestos and a certified asbestos sampling company to make sure that there's no asbestos in the house. And if there is, it needs to be taken care of. Um, again, jumping into the weeds. And in the case of Scott's house, um, there was some acoustic ceiling spackle in a closet that didn't get renovated. And that texture on the ceiling oftentimes contains asbestos. And, uh, and it's not 100% asbestos and it's not gonna drop on your head and kill you. But um, any amount over, I think it's a half a percent requires um, special handling. Um, if you look in old kitchens, sometimes you'll see these small vinyl floor tiles that are say nine inches by nine inches. That's a very common asbestos item. So we, we survey for environmental things. Um, the lead question um, comes up a lot and uh, the EPA has really recognized that lead is a hazard not only to homeowners and workers, but to future occupants of a home. And nothing can be done about the lead that has already fallen off the siding and is now in the garden bed next to your house. But they do, they do want workers and homeowners to be protected from lead. And there is a, a renovate repair process with the EPA, where if you if you disturb more than a certain amount of lead-based paint, you have to use uh, safe practices. Um, in Fortunately for us, in some ways, if an entire house is being removed and there's no um, future occupants of the house, the um, lead concern is somewhat alleviated because now you only need to protect your own workers. You don't need to protect future occupants. So full, house, full houses do not require um, lead abatement. The, um, in most jurisdictions, lead containing material is still allowed in the construction and demolition waste stream. So that just goes in your standard dumpster. Um, so uh, phone call, I usually like to see some photos, then a site visit. And yeah, the site visit is looking at, at a variety of things. How many times has it been renovated? Am I gonna be taking paneling off of sheetrock off my walls? Am I going to be taking sheetrock off of plaster, off of lath? All of these materials can come off and so, you know, paneling can be reused, but it does add time and therefore add cost to the project. And um, then usually we, uh, we, we uh, investigate the possibility of charitable donation only so that the, we can see if, those no, if that math works for them or not. Um, and then we schedule deconstruction and we work year round. Um, and hopefully folks, I would say if somebody's considering deconstruction, just like a building project, you're not gonna find a builder for a whole house uh, on three months notice um, because a house is a one to two year commitment, build commitment, unless you've got a, either a big crew or you're using some kind of panelized project. So you really wanna try to line up your deconstruction crew in the winter for the next year. Um, or if it's a larger project, you know, at least six months out because at least in our case, um, we are busy. Well, yeah, I mean, you said one of your biggest challenges is there's just more, more people that want to have it done than you have the capacity to take on. Um, along with other environmental things, what do you do when you run into mold? So you had talked about things getting wet, right? So I'm assuming that it's fairly typical or common for you to run into mold and that they're the 
recycling places that would take some of these materials wouldn't take mold, but say the condition of the wood is still in good shape, but it has mold on it. Do you ever do just a full mold abatement then before you continue to do deconstruction? Or if you get in and you find that there's just mold, you know, is excessive, it just goes in the dumpster. So um, if I get to a house and it is smelling strongly of mold or mildew, um, I will probably not take that project. Um, we do sometimes uh, do fire damage jobs, which can potentially have that problem. I mean, mold is an indication that the material stayed wet for too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have had these horrible stories where somebody calls us and says, I want you to deconstruct my house. We built it four years ago. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And it's because they did not do proper uh, moisture barrier. They did not do proper air sealing. And then they didn't do proper ventilation. And this is a very real problem, especially circling around to what you said before about the judicious use of, of spray foam. Um, we have seen cases where spray foam was not installed in an adequate thickness. And, um, and so moisture was, for example, collecting in the wall cavity as opposed to on, on the side it was supposed to be collecting on. Um, the biggest challenge, honestly, with, with that kind of organic growth is um, when the material, when the building is coming down and we're staging materials, a lot of these older houses that were built in the 18, 1900s have a, a, an incredible burden of all kinds of funkiness on them. And then when they get stuck in an August day in New England in the rain for a week and they're not properly ventilated, then yeah, they do change colors and they become a, a different product. Um, in our particular case, we a lot of our larger dimensional rough lumber actually goes for remanufacturing. Um, we have um, we have a wholesaler that buys um, our old lumber and actually pressure washes it and uh, remills it. And um, there are some folks, especially out on the West Coast, that when they're going through their remanufacture process, they even kiln dry the material before it gets back into the public use. But there are a, a number of products that can treat the biological issues associated with the lumber, including um, including a, a bleach solution, as well as a product called Concrobium, which I've been recommending for some people. And of course, if you are a person with uh, environmental sensitivities, um, keeping your building products dry from start to finish is, uh, is critical, and, and you may not be the appropriate person to uh, incorporate some materials into your project. I, I'm not as sensitive to those things as some people are. And of course, as workers, we wear the appropriate personal protective equipment when we're working with that kind of material, combining that with ventilation. Um, you know, we don't want our workers to get sick and, and there's no there's no project that's worth getting sick for or there's no product that's worth putting back into the reuse stream if it's, if it's not healthy to start with. Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about kind of the worst things. What's your favorite thing to deconstruct? What's the best thing to, you know, you walk into your house and you're like, yes, <laughs> this is going to be great. Um, I would say it's like a three-way tie. Um, in our, in some parts of the country, um, brick is, is the, is the building material of choice. And, um, like Baltimore is famous for its brick. They have a lot of high quality brick there and a lot of their housing stock was made at the time when uh, lime was used as a mortar as opposed to Portland cement. So they're eminently reusable. Um, And so if we get older fireplaces, um, 
that um, come apart and clean up easily. Don't have a lot of creosote on them. Um, bricks are one of my my favorite reuse items, and we we have we have been the third or fourth reuser of bricks, and it's uh, it's just it's literally a building block. It's like a Lego, and it can be used over and over again. Um, hardwood flooring is very gratifying. Um, with care, it can be removed um, and denailed and reinstalled, and um, it just adds. Hardwood floors just really add a lot to any project. Um, they look good almost immediately. Um, and <laughs> caveat to folks installing things, keep in mind that somebody's coming after you. Um, hardwood flooring, do not glue your hardwood flooring down. Um, I actually prefer spiral shank nails to staples, especially staples that are applied every six inches to hardwood flooring, but hardwood flooring is another gratifying one. And then um, probably the most reusable of all items is kitchens. Um, modern box kitchens where they're fastened on the face with hidden screws and have granite countertops and nice appliances is just a win-win-win. Uh, so many of these kitchens were installed in the last 10 years and they're being taken out for aesthetic reasons, not for, not for dated reasons. And they're often accompanied by high-end appliances. Uh, it's a real uh, easy uh, one to work out math-wise. We'll pull a kitchen for no charge uh, <clears throat> because it's one of those parts of new construction where the, the price of the product doesn't really reflect the cost of production. So you're being asked to pay a very high price for new appliances and a very high price for new cabinets that is basically unreasonable and puts those projects really out of reach of the average homeowner. Um, I don't think I've ever sold a kitchen cabinet set for more than $2,000, including nice countertops. Um, because again, if you look at the, uh, the uh, I forget the proper term for it, but the product, the, the circular economy, you know, where somebody agrees to take their product back when they're done with it. Um, when you look at um, the, um, it's just so easy to reuse a kitchen and um, that, that term is escaping me and uh, it can really be reused by anybody in any space, even if it ends up becoming a workbench in a garage or, you know, storage, that sort of thing. So flooring, bricks, kitchen cabinets, um, they tend to move quickly. They tend to be relatively easy to remove if you have the appropriate tools and uh, there's a good demand for them. And then this time of year, um, entry doors in their frames, Everybody's got a project that has to be closed up before it gets cold. That's awesome. Um, I mean, that's probably would have been my guess based on the stuff that you see in reuse stores. You know, if you've ever been in a reuse store, or you've ever seen, you know, there's lots of people who are looking for salvaged beams and, you know, brick or, um, you know, kitchen cabinetry. And I think it's great to hear, like, don't glue your hardwood flooring together. That's, you know, that's important, um, you know, and that, a lot of kitchen cabinets, you know, there are people who come in and they're like, oh, these are, you know, these aren't high quality cabinets. They won't come apart well, but that's not necessarily true. It doesn't sound like based on your experience, you know, and, and that there are, there's an end user for a lot of those, you know, parts and pieces, um, which is great, uh, that come apart and, and countertops, right. You know, you don't even think about, about that, um, we talk about remnants all the time. You people go, you know, go buy a remnant for, you know, bathroom sink or whatever, because, you know, but 
that there could be countertops and kitchen cabinetry and stuff that's even just readily available um, through a reuse department. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk about this today because this is something that, you know, as we move more into building science and we think about landfill and carbon and taking buildings apart and keeping them, I think this is so incredibly important. Um, any last words or thoughts that you'd like to impart on people who either are considering doing deconstruction or considering starting a deconstruction business? I'll, I'll address the practitioner side first, and I'll echo the lament of many um many folks in the trade who are 50 and over, myself included, um, this is a very field and you can rapidly distinguish yourself by your customer service. Um, both businesses I've started were profitable in their first six months. I was paying myself hourly in the first week. So it's not a difficult um, trade to get started in. And uh, I'd love to see more cooperation with Botex and other um, groups that are training young people to get into this industry because we talk a lot about the green economy when we say weatherization and solar and we can't seem to imagine what other green jobs there are but there, there is no greener job than this and the reward at the end of the day is a good night's sleep and feeling really good about what you've done um, and there are a number of people in our industry who would love to see it grow and if your questions and your needs are concise, we'd be happy to mentor you along the way. Uh, and in that regard, there's also a lot of good information on the buildreuse.org website. Um, from a homeowner perspective, um, engage your architect and your builder early, uh, as I mentioned. And um, if you fall short and can't find anyone to help you with this, there are some things that you can choose to salvage on your own with your own abilities. You'll learn fairly quickly what what you can and can't do. But if you were to uh, either remove things yourself or uh, advertise that you have things available for qualified people, you can still perform some amount of reuse on your own and lacking any other option. Sometimes people will take things for free that they would not pay money for. But again, we've still kept the recycling, the reuse circle going. Yeah. I think that's great, great wisdom for people. I'm always encouraging them to engage in their building professionals and their architects earlier on in a process that it is a process, you know, you need time. And, you know, recently with getting the, um, the new window lead times out there, you know, some windows being out 30 weeks, you know, we're gaining some more time in the beginning of a project to do some of this deconstruction stuff, which is, um, hopefully something good that's coming out of the, you know, the market. But um, again, I really appreciate you taking out the time because I know you're busy and you're probably uh, on a job site uh, trying to uh, deconstruct something. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking more about this because I think it's just such a great, um, a great way to start thinking about our building industry and what we do with the materials that we produce, because, you know, we talk about, Oh, the cost of construction, but we really forget about the other parts of construction that are really part of it, which is, you know, deconstruction reuse, you know, the, what's the, 
deficit on day one? Why are things more expensive? You know, the real diversity, you touched on that, um, which I think is so critical and important. And I know that as an architect, one of the most important things that I did was work as an energy auditor for a while and get into a bunch of existing houses. That taught me so much about construction and how things are built. So for our young people and teaching and training in Votech and them taking things apart makes them I mean, that's just such valuable knowledge, that hands-on skills, the seeing how things go together really will change, I think, how we build things in the future if we know how things came apart. So, Yeah, there is a lot of learning and seeing how things are put together. And I will also mention, especially for folks who have maybe lived in the home that they're, they're talking about remodeling or taking down, this is a, this is a very honoring method of uh, transitioning to your new building it can be it can be devastating to uh, come back the next day and find your house gone whereas if you see people working with care and attention uh, and reusing aspects of your home there's a there's a non-monetary personal gain that that people can realize by going oh my house is being lovingly recycled and i'm saving those special parts of my house to reincorporate in the new construction and these people care and uh, I'm not part of the problem now. I'm, I'm part of the solution. And, and it's, a, it's a gradual process, which, you know, if it's a house that maybe your parents grew up in, you know, that's, that's, a, that's part of the process. Yeah, there's a lot of attachment to it. I think on that sentiment, I will say thank you for sharing your time. Um, that was such a great way to end this podcast. And so um, I will make sure that I put a link up. Uh, to deconstruction works. If anybody in Vermont needs your help deconstructing something or, uh, and I will also put uh, the link to the, the build website that you mentioned for anybody who wants to learn more about, about doing this or starting, you know, in the, in the field. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Thank you.